Last week, we looked at the question, how can we know that we are saved? And that was a two-week question. How, how do we know that we're saved? Because that's the tension that the end of chapter 7 brings up. In your inner man, you desire the law of God, but in your members, in your flesh, you see another law at work. So how do you know if your desire for sin is coming from the flesh or from the heart? And it's a critical question. Because if your desire for sin is coming from the heart, then you're not saved. But everyone who is saved still desires sin from the flesh. So we looked at that for two weeks. And the last way that we know that we are saved, we said last week, was that those of us who are saved will be willing. More than that, we will make decisions to put ourselves in a position to suffer for Christ. That's the hallmark of the Christian. The Christian isn't only willing, but we make decisions to put ourselves in a context where we are going to suffer, and not simply generic suffering, but we're going to suffer because of Christ. We are going to identify with him, and in that identification, the world will persecute us. We will suffer, or we will have to sacrifice something that if we did not identify with Christ, we would not have to sacrifice. Today and next week, we're going to follow up on this question because this is what Paul does. He says, if that's true of the Christian, if it's true of the Christian that you are willing and you are going to suffer for the sake of Christ and you will endure until the end in that suffering, we need to ask the question, well, why should we be willing to suffer for Christ? Why? If you find yourself in suffering, if you don't know why it is worth suffering, for the sake of Christ, you will abort the suffering. You'll, you'll find the quickest path back to comfort and safety and security. If you don't know why it is worth your life to suffer for Christ, you will avoid it at all costs. And that's what I see in the church in North America today. We are addicted to comfort. We are addicted to safety and security. We're addicted to pleasure, and suffering is at the top of all of our prayer lists. God, remove the suffering. Please remove the suffering. Please stop the suffering, rather than, God, help me to glorify you in the suffering. Help me to endure through the suffering. Help me to use this suffering for the sake of the kingdom. May you use this suffering to bring others into the kingdom. Those are two very different ways of praying. So why should we be willing to suffer for Christ? Today's text begins to answer that question. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? We're going to read verses 18 through 25. As you're finding your place, please stand. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25 this is the word of God. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, 
But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, oh, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, as we take a look at suffering and glory today, I am mindful of the fact that as you decided to reveal to us the glory that is coming, you contextualize that revelation in an exhortation to suffer. This is counterintuitive to us. This is not what we would expect. So help us to understand glory the way you understand it, that the crown comes through the cross. And help us to endure the suffering of this age. God, I pray for each one of us here assembled. Each one of us is suffering in different ways. And each of us is going to be called to suffer in different ways before the end. God, strengthen us to suffer. Give us courage. Give us perseverance. Grant us hope. I pray you'd help me to preach for my sake and for the sake of this church and for the sake of your great name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In the verses previous to today's preaching text, we're told that we've been adopted. We cry out to God as our Father, Abba. And if we are adopted children, then we're heirs. That opened the door to talking about glory, because what does it mean to be an heir? It means to receive an inheritance. What's the inheritance? The inheritance is everything that God has to give to the Son. So everything that the Father has given to Jesus Christ, Jesus has decided to share for, with us. And he has brought us into the family by dying for us. And all of this is ours, we're told, at the end of chapter, or verse 17, provided we suffer with him. So there's a provision, there's a condition. This is a problem with the prosperity teaching and the prosperity practice of non-prosperity Christians. So you don't have to adopt a uh, Joel Osteenian prosperity gospel to be a prosperity Christian, we can just live it out. We can reject him and yet still steal for ourselves pieces of his message. But the condition of glory is suffering. It's very clear, verse 17. So why should we be willing to suffer? Paul gives us the answer in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We suffer now 
because of the unimaginable glory that is to come. So, so what Paul has done here is he's contrasted suffering and glory. You, we suffer now because of the glory to come. And you don't get the glory without the suffering now. Now, there's grades to suffering. We don't all have to be martyred. But we all must suffer. Suffering now will bring glory later. This is really hard for us. It's abstract. How can we draw on future glory for present endurance through suffering? Really, really, I don't know, it's, it's just such a small taste of this. In the middle of a Canadian winter, knowing that you have some tropical retreat coming in March is the same concept. You can get through the cold and the snow and the dark in January and February, because in March, you're going to be somewhere near the equator. Now, you just take that and you, you expand it in infinite amounts, and you can suffer now, even to the depths of death, even violent death, for the sake of Christ, because of the exaltation that is absolutely rock-solid and promised to come. In order to peel this apart, we need to ask two questions. Number one, what is suffering? And number two, what is glory? What is suffering and what is glory? So that's the remainder of our time. What is suffering? Prisca asked me this last week, and so I looked into it a little bit, and Angie and I talked about it. Suffering is, is not an easy concept in some ways because there's all different kinds of suffering, and, and we run the risk of just sort of identifying suffering here and not understanding how expansive suffering can be, and then that can lead to all kinds of confusion and misappropriation of this text. So what I want to do is start with the biggest container of suffering, and then work to the point. And, and the point is really where the call of the Christian is to suffer. So all of this suffering is true for the Christian. Some of it is true for non-Christians, but we are called to suffer at the epicenter, at the, at, at the very point of what it means to suffer. But let's look most broadly. Most broadly, to suffer is to exist in a fallen world. And so this kind of suffering is true for Christians and non-Christians. Everyone who exists is suffering. Aging is suffering. Now, Adam and Eve, in all of their posterity, had they not fallen, they would have aged, but they would have aged without deterioration. So our experience of aging is suffering. Because we age in the context of a sin-death environment. We're in a fallen world. So sin and death all around us will necessitate suffering in a fallen world. And this is also why we have natural disasters. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. Suffering happens in the world because it's either too hot or too cold. It's never just right. Well, there's the odd day. But then there's still mosquitoes, right? So it's never just right. Natural disasters, whether it's an earthquake or a tsunami or a hurricane or a thunderstorm or a mudslide or a flood or a drought, there's all kinds of natural disasters. That's because we live in a fallen world. God didn't make the world that way. When God made the world, he said, it's good. When we look around, it may look beautiful at times, but it's not good, not in, that, not in the way that it was before sin came into the world. We also have disease and disability. 
No one should ever say you have cancer because you sinned, but cancer is the result of sin. It, it's not personal. We all, cancer is a reality in a fallen world because humanity has sinned. So cancer and every other kind of disease, the common cold, for example, is, is a reality because of the fallen world. We suffer through terrible man colds because of the fall, because we live in a sin-death environment. And so that's part of the curse against men. Men get colds worse than women. It's just scientific fact. <laughs> okay, that's not true. It's not true. Men are just weaker. Sometimes. But, but disease, from the common cold to terminal illness, is not the direct correlation of I sin, therefore I have a cold. That's karma. But it is because of the sin. It's a result of sin. And, and uh, disability, whether that's uh, intellectual disability or physical disability, all the mental health issues that, that are plaguing our culture right now, people who are restrained to wheelchairs, developmental uh, problems, all of that is not the result of any individual sin, but because of the sin-death environment in which we live. That's suffering. We're told in Genesis 3 that marriage will be difficult. A woman will want to control her husband. Husband will dominate over her, over his wife. Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage until they sinned. They were both naked and they were not ashamed. And it was perfect. It was good. And now marriage is, by definition, going to be a challenge. It's suffering. You do suffer through marriage. You need to know that when you sign up to be married. And those of you who are not yet married, know that when you get married, you might as well just picture a martyr's crown going on your head because you will martyr yourself day in and day out for your spouse. And husbands, you are called first to lay down your life and even to die for the sake of your wife. But Marriage now is difficult. Raising children is going to be painful. As the other curse against the woman, right? raising children, bearing children is going to be difficult. That's not just the process of becoming pregnant. It's not just monthly menstruation. It's not just delivering a child into the world. It's raising little sinners is going to be suffering. So that's for the woman and for the man, primarily given in that passage to the woman. To the man, work is going to be hard. That's true for men and women too. It, wa it was a delight to tend the garden, to subdue it. And now it's hard. doesn't matter what your line of work. It's hard. It's suffering to go to work. No one can say honestly that they love everything about their job. There's suffering that comes with every job. And so all of this is suffering in a fallen world. And and suffering in a fallen world is worth it because of the glory that's coming. Secondly, now let's move in. Suffering in this world is going to happen because of sin. There's sin in me and there's sin in you. There's sin in every individual and there's sin in all the world around that individual. So I suffer because of my own sin. There's consequences to my sin that I have to reap. And everyone who is under my authority, whether in my family or in my church, or if I was uh, a governing official in my state, suffers. When the head suffers, the whole body suffers. 
Just keep that in mind if you aspire to headship of any form. That's why when David sinned, so many people suffered. So there's sin in me, and I have to live with the consequences of my sin, and others need to live with the consequences of my sin. But there's also sin around me, and people who are, are not above me or under my authority will suffer because of the sin in the world. And so we all cause one another to suffer. You just read the news, it's filled with stories of suffering because we hurt one another when we sin. We hurt each other deeply and regularly. And so suffering comes because of the sin of humanity. And now we drive to the point of it all. And this is why Jesus came into the world, because the world was fallen, because there's sin in humanity. So Jesus suffered ultimately in one perfect act of obedience on the cross. He suffered for righteousness' sake. He suffered to be the perfect covenant partner with God that we failed to be. He took our sins into himself and bore the punishment and the wrath that we deserve. He suffered as a servant for us. That's what it means to serve one another ultimately, is to suffer for other people. Not to require other people to suffer for you. And we, if we are united with Christ, are called to join him on the cross in that suffering. And this comes in several forms. Let me just narrow it down to two. When we are united with Christ, it begins with self-denial. If you're going to be my disciple, says Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does that mean? Ultimately, what it means is your life is not your own anymore. You live entirely for the sake of Christ and for his gospel and for his glory and for the extension of his kingdom. Therefore, whatever it is that you were pursuing, whatever your desires for self were, they are no longer appropriate. Everything that you do is now for the sake of the glory of Christ. That's suffering but I just want to get married, but I just want to have a house, but I just want to retire, but I just want to live out my days without fear or danger or death inflicted upon me. Well, to be united with Christ is to say, I will go where you send me. I will do what you ask me to do. I will conform my life to the scriptures. I will look for opportunities to lift high the name of Jesus no matter what happens to me. persecution self-denial leads to the second part of union with christ no one is greater than his master if the world hated me says jesus the world will hate you does the world hate you if it doesn't it means you have not yet denied yourself taken up your cross and followed jesus because jesus doesn't say the world has hated me therefore there's a good chance that the world is going to hate you jesus says the world hated me to the point of killing me and if you follow me if you deny yourself if you pick up your cross and come after me if you call yourself by my name the world will hate you that's suffering I don't know how much the world hates the church. I think it does. But how much does the world hate you? I want to be careful there. I don't want the world to hate you because you're just an awful person to be around. I want the world to hate you because of your union with Christ. 
So may the world hate us not because we give the world reason to hate us, but let the world hate us because we love Jesus Christ. And the love of Christ that is in us propels us and compels us to put ourselves in to situations and context where we are at risk. We are in danger. And that danger is multifaceted. I don't have time to go into it, but it might be slight danger, ridicule, mocking, being, uh, not being esteemed, losing a promotion at work, losing a, a social group, or it might be on the other ex extreme, uh, your very life. But it is never, ever biblical to say, I will not go there because I might die if I proclaim the name of Christ there. That is not a biblical reason not to go. It just means we haven't wrestled with why it is worth suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, there might be other reasons not to go, but the fear of death and danger is not a reason not to go. We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is this glory that Paul speaks of? Because without an understanding of glory, without understanding what God has promised to us, we will never suffer the way the Bible calls us to suffer. We are hardwired against it. So our instinct to self-preservation is too strong. We will not put ourselves into risky situations. We will not put our lives on the line, whether slightly or severely, for the sake of Christ if we do not wrestle with, understand, and embrace the glory that is about to be revealed to us. And, and this is what we must always be thinking about in our life. We must always be thinking about this when life is good and when life is not good so that we're not distracted. Our life must be hid with Christ in heaven. What does that mean? Partly it means that we long for anything else for the glory to be revealed. We want the end of this sin-death environment. We want the end of the sin in us and in those around us. We want the end of suffering, but we'll persevere through it because we know how good the glory is. I consider, says Paul, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Does Paul just not understand suffering? He doesn't say that it's worth it. Like, you know, they're about even. He says they're not even worth comparing. The, the sufferings give me the worst life ever lived that's not even worth comparing to the glory that God's going to give. What's this glory? Because it's pretty hard to live in a sin-death environment. It's pretty hard to live with my own sin and your sin and all of the sin around us. It's pretty hard to put myself in a position for the sake of Christ where I might be persecuted unto death. That's nothing. That, that's slight. That's, don't even think about it. It's, it's a fleeting concern to be sort of whisked away like a, an annoying mosquito or a horsefly? That's what Paul says. That's the, that's the force of it. Just swat that away because there's great weight of glory coming. So what is this great glory? 
It comes in two parts. We find out in verses 19 through 22 that part of the glory about to be revealed is that creation itself, the whole universe, is going to be glorified. And this, this is why it's really important that our theology does not have us dying, escaping our bodies and this universe to go to some ethereal heaven. Because that's not the promise. That's not going to sustain you. That will not be enough. That ethereal nothingness does not motivate us to put our lives on the line. But when we find out that what God's plan is, is to glorify this universe, he's not going to throw it away, but he's going to raise it up in glory. What does that mean? We're going to get into that in a minute, but just let me tease you with this. He's going to make the universe suitable for the fullness of his glory to live inside of this universe. That's got to be pretty glorious if the infinite God can dwell inside of creation without creation exploding. That's the kind of universe that God is going to make for us, and he's, not, he's going to do it with this universe. He's not going to throw this universe away. He's going to transform and glorify, resurrect this universe into a habitation suitable for him. That's awesome. And then he's going to say to us, this is your home. And we're not going to be in a worship service in the sense that we think, where we're all like pointing toward, you know, standing in one place, doing, uh, singing praises for age after age after age. We're going to be in an eternal worship service, but that worship service will include us going to the far reaches of this glorious cosmos that God has created to be his dwelling place and ours. And we will give glory to God everywhere we go as we enjoy the good things that he has made for us. This is amazing. It's, it's a lot different than escaping your body to float on a cloud in front of a throne where there is no God except for sort of this fluid, ethereal, spiritual nothingness. Which one motivates you more? So that's the first one, creation is going to be glorified secondly we are going to be glorified that would be great if god did away with his sin death environment and he lived in this universe but it's not great for us if we're not there to enjoy it and so the second thing that we're going to look at is in verse 23 uh, god says to us through paul i'm going to make you a body that can live in my presence in my glorified universe. So you know how we, we don't live long underwater because our bodies are not made to live underwater. We could not live long in this glorious universe before the throne of God as we gaze upon his face unless God makes us fit for that kind of life. And that's the glory to be revealed to us. And Peter says it this way, that we will be partakers of the divine nature. Another word for glorification is deification. They're two different English words for the same Greek word. We don't become God, but we are given the stuff of God. And he's going to do it to this body. He's not going to throw away your body. He's going to raise it in glory. Let's take a look. Why should we be willing to suffer for Christ? Number one, because creation is going to be glorified. Look at verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In these verses, Paul personifies creation. says that the creation gives creation a consciousness. This is just a uh, a literary trick so that we can understand what he's trying to say. Creation is not, does not have a personal consciousness, but creation is groaning as if a person would groan, wanting to, to be glorified. Paul says that creation, in verse 20, was subjected to futility. What he means there is, if you go back to Genesis 3, creation is cursed. When Adam and Eve sin. God curses the universe and says, you're not going to be good anymore. You're going to be filled with natural disasters and disease and sin and death. Creation doesn't work the way it's supposed to. As I said, work becomes toil. We have cancer, disease, natural disaster, rust, moth, decay. Everything always is rotting. It's not the way it was created wasn't meant to rot, to go back to chaos. We have to work hard to keep our houses in order. If you do nothing, it'll just be a mess. We have to work hard to maintain the order. That's not the way God created the universe. But now we're always sliding away toward chaos, decomposition, death. Paul says that this wasn't creation's fault. It Creation wasn't willingly put in, into this position of futility, but God did it. It was because of him who subjected it. Who was him who subjected the universe to this, this futility, this curse? It was God. Well, why would God do that? Well, he created us to be the vice, his vice regents in creation, to, to bring all of creation into its glorious splendor. When the, when the apex of God's creation fell into sin, we could no longer live in paradise. Do you know what it would have been like if, if we, if we uh, sinned, and we were filled with sin, but God let us live in a perfect paradise? At the end of Genesis 3, God says, you know, it's not good that that we should give the man and the woman access to the tree of life, that they should live forever. And so we were banished to the east of Eden. We were kicked out of the garden. We were kicked out of paradise into the wilderness and, and into the curse. And, and a cherubim guarded way back to paradise. And I believe, if you read Revelation 22, that Eden was caught up into heaven. Why would God do that? If we lived in a perfect environment, if we lived in a perfect universe, then we would never cry out for salvation. If we, if we were not in this sin-death environment, then we wouldn't have that suffering that is common to all people. And it's that very suffering in the life of you and me and every person that has ever lived that brings us to the end of ourselves as we see our bodies breaking down, as, as we wrestle with drought and, and storms and earthquakes, we cry out for more and we say, God, save us. God, help us. But if we still lived in paradise, we wouldn't cry out for that. And so the curse was God's way of driving us to him through Christ because we're told here that God subjected the creation in hope 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Who's doing the hoping there? God cursed the universe so that he might introduce hope. Who's doing the hoping? It's not the universe. If you look very carefully there, it's the children of God. In hope, the children of God hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. That it will obtain a freedom. That is, that it will be restored back to goodness and not only that, but to glory. So we are saved with the promise. We are saved with the hope that if you put your hope in God, He will bring an end to the suffering that has been brought about the subjection of creation to futility that in other words let me put it to you in different words God has promised that he will lift the curse the curse will not endure forever the curse is meant to drive us to God that we would cry out for something better so how are you suffering in a way that is common to all of human beings your health your toil your relationships, your raising of children, the physical and emotional and mental challenges that come because we live in a fallen world. What I want you to hear today is God has brought that reality into place, not because he wants to hurt you, but he wants you to cry out to him for more. He wants you to have hope that that's not the end of the story. Therefore, when salvation comes in all of its fullness, that's the promise of God, then the purpose of the curse against creation will have run its course. Uh, when, When God gives the sons of God, that is us, men and women, the freedom that he has promised, and that's he's talking about our future resurrection from the dead, There will be no reason for the universe to be cursed anymore. It will have served its function. The futility of the universe will have done what it was supposed to do. That is, cause us to suffer so that we would cry out for liberation from suffering. And so if you're suffering, cry out for a liberation, but have a long view to the liberation. Don't ask for liberation necessarily today or tomorrow or next month or next week, but ask for liberation at the consummation of the age, and pray that Jesus Christ would come back, that the end of the age of the curse and futility against the universe would have run its course. That the last of the elect will have come to faith, and now the consummation of the ages has come. Because God will lift the curse. Creation will no longer be subjected to futility. That futility will have served its purpose. Well, what will this good universe look and feel like? God has given us some hints about what it will be like to live in a universe that's not in, uh, under, its cur- under God's curse. Uh, a universe that's not subjected to futility. And we see it in Genesis 1 and 2. And we see it in Revelation 21 and 22. So if you want to know what it's going to be like, we'll just read the, the, the four chapters at the bookends of our Bible, the first two and the last two chapters, that's what God has promised to us. 
In fact, if you get to Revelation 21 and 22, it far exceeds Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Because Genesis 1 and 2 is good. Revelation 21 and 22 is glory. We're not going back to what is good. We're moving forward to what is glorious. So it's all that Genesis 1 and 2 was and more. But even in Genesis 1 and 2, God's not manifesting the fullness of his person within creation. He visits from time to time in a mediated way. But in Revelation 21 and 22, the universe is God's home. I just want to read some of 21 and 22 because this is the hope. This is why you should be willing to suffer. Because this is promised by God. Uh, Listen to Revelation 21 verses 1 through 7. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the Bible's way of saying a resurrected, glorified universe. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, that's heaven, that's the throne room of God right now, coming down out of the skies from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. No longer a distinction between heaven and creation. God lives where we live. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We cannot even conceive of a world where there's no death. And if no death, then no terminal illness. And if no terminal illness, no inconvenient illnesses. No need for medical doctors. Total and perfect health and strength. Vitality. We can't conceive of a place where there's no more pain. There's no mourning. There's nothing to be sad about. There's nothing that will cause us to cry because of pain. You might still cry because of the beauty of God, but not crying because of pain. No kind of sin or pain anymore. It's passed away. And he who was sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that. It's like God reveals this to us, and he just accentuates it. He says, You're not going to believe this. I could tell it to you, but you're not going to believe it. So I want you to write it down, and I I want you to also write down that this is trustworthy and true. How do we know this is trustworthy and true? Because God has promised it, and then he told us, write it down, and I want you to also write down that I am giving you my guarantee. This is trustworthy. This is true. This will happen. This is the promise of the gospel. He said to me, it's done. I love this. This is God the Father. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So this is heaven, which is up in heaven now, comes down, lands on earth. Now we're getting a picture of this new universe starting with heaven and a river that starts at the throne of God, comes down 
out of heaven, which is on earth, and waters the whole world. It's awesome. On either side of the river is the tree of life, which we haven't had access to. Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And there won't be anything cursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need, uh, need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. I, just a little footnote on this. It's not that there won't be a sun, moon, and stars, because it's this universe that God is going to exalt and glorify. It, it's just, you can't see the stars on, during the day because the sun is too bright. And God brings with him to this resurrected universe the unapproachable light within which he has eternally dwelt. So the sun will be there, the moon will be there, the stars will be there, but you won't be able to see them because the light of God that fills the universe will be infinitely brighter and we will be made fit to live there in that brightness. And he said to me, again, these words are trustworthy and true, but you've got to believe this. This is true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And then Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And in Chapter 21, God the Father said that he was the Alpha and the Omega. And here in chapter 22, verse 13, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That, that's worth suffering for. Second thing that we need to know about glory, we should be willing to suffer for Christ because we are going to be glorified. We see that in verse 23. And not only the creation, meaning not only the creation is going to be glorified, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now hold on a minute, Paul. I thought you said uh, up in verse 15 that we have already been adopted well that's true we're already adopted but the the sort of the court date of our adoption it'll be sealed and made permanent when we are raised bodily from the dead and we long for that we're, we're not content just to have the first fruits of the spirit we're not content just to be to have this the, this position before god we want the the fullness of the promise we want resurrected glorified bodies and that's going to happen. We're told in Isaiah's gospel that creation itself will give birth to our dead bodies when we are raised from the dead. In Isaiah 26, verse 19, Isaiah the prophet says this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. 
And I love this picture because in, in Romans 8, we have this idea of the creation groaning as if in childbirth. What's the childbirth? It's the birth of the sons of God. And when we are birthed from the earth, the creator of the earth will adopt us in full and give us all the richness of the inheritance which he has given to Christ eternally. Just chew on that for the next week. The earth will give birth to your dead body and God will adopt you and give you everything that he has given to Christ. Adam was made from the earth. God breathed into him and he became a living soul. When he died, because he was from the dust of the earth, he had to go back to the dust of the earth. In Isaiah 26, 19, it's the dust from which we were made, to which we will go, from which we will be raised. God is awesome, and the promise of the gospel is so much more than feeling better about ourselves. It's so much more than having a clear conscience. It's so much better than escaping these bodies. It's so much better than self-esteem and and any pile of gold that you could accumulate for yourself on this earth. It's so much more. So don't settle for the prosperity gospel. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it doesn't promise enough. It promises you a microwave dinner instead of surf and turf, steak and lobster at the sea. So we should never say, well, the prosperity gospel is offering too much. It's offering too little and too soon. So what will this glory be like? What will it be like when the earth gives birth to our dead remains and God adds the stuff of God to our physical, now super physical, glorious constitution. We will be partakers of the divine nature, fit as a fish is fit for the water, fit to walk into the unapproachable light of God in a universe that he has exalted so that he himself can fit within it. What will that be like? It will be this body, but it won't be this body. It'll be this body glorified. We know a little bit about what this body will be like from Luke 24. Jesus is resurrected and he shows up. He appears and disappears. But what we do know is he could be touched. He had flesh. He had bones. It was the same flesh and bones that had been crucified on the cross, buried in the grave. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Put your hand in my side. Continuity. It's a physical body that we're going to have. He could eat. They, they still didn't believe it. They thought, I might be hallucinating that I can feel you, that I can see you. So he says, do you have anything here to eat? And he took a fish and he ate it. We'll be able to eat. In 1 John 3, 1 to 3, we're told that we are already God's children and what we will be, we don't even know what that's going to be like, but we do know that we will be like Jesus Christ. For when we see him, we will be like him. And then 1 Corinthians 15, I I would love to read the whole chapter to you, but I've preached the whole chapter to you, so you can go back and listen to these if you want a refresher on what this glorified body is going to be like. 
go back and listen to those, but let me just read you some verses to close our time together. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And he's talking about you plant a seed in the ground and out of the ground doesn't come the seed, but the seed dies and produces some kind of a plant or a tree or something that is connected to it, but it's so much more glorious. Put an acorn in the ground, that acorn becomes an oak tree. He says, it's like that. When you want to think about resurrection, it's something like that. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is planted is perishable. So I die, you put my perishable body in the ground, meaning that my body's always moving toward death. It's always moving towards chaos and decomposition. You, you put that body in the ground, that perishable body, but what is raised up will be imperishable. It's planted in dishonor but it's raised in glory. It's planted in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is planted a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. This does not mean that we're without a body. Spiritual body means glorious, super physical body. The body like the Son of God in heaven. Going down to verse 49, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What will it be like? Well, we're like Adam now, but we will be like Christ, resurrected and glorified. I want to tell you a mystery, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you this mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. See how it's putting on more. It's not taking off what we have. This perishable must put on more. And this mortal body must put on immortality, more. I'm physical now. I'm going to be super physical I'm mortal now. I'm going to be immortal. I am created after Adam, but I'm going to be created after God. <laughs> These are not small things. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come, come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shares his inheritance with us. We need to be people who are constantly longing for glory, because the more you meditate on and think about and pray for and long after this glory, the more useful you will be in this sin-death environment. Because you'll be able to say with Paul, to live is Christ. I'll suffer now. For what? 100 years? 80 years? 60 years? 50 years? 40 years? I'll suffer now. Because there is an infinite, eternal glory coming that will never end. And if you think in those terms, then to die is gain. Let's move to the next act. 
Why do we cling to this sin-death environment where suffering is the norm? Why not put ourselves into positions of great danger, and if we die, that's gain? All of a sudden, the sin-death environment that we're living in is done. We're in the presence of Christ where we are, we are no longer suffering, and then we'll be raised in glory. So, so be careful, I guess, in some ways. If you pray for the end of suffering, you're really praying for death. And so it should be. The church is effective when we realize that we don't even really want to be here. But we'll stay here because we're of some use to this world if we, we live for Christ. So we don't self-destruct. We stay here to serve Christ, knowing that means suffering. But when this life ends, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. Now glory. Keep your lives in perspective. Seek glory. And it will be yours. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us that we are so content to live in a state of suffering. In fact, we cling to it. It's because we don't understand. We, we have not yet embraced the, the promise of the gospel, which is glory for creation and glory for us. And we will see your face. And we will be your children, and Christ will be our brother. And we will share his inheritance. Oh God, help us. Help us to be people of the resurrection so that we can live productive lives for the sake of Christ. Ready us to suffer so that we may be glorified with him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.